please turn with me to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Exodus chapter 9, we'll be reading 8 through 12, but I'm only focusing on verse 12. We studied this plague last time. We're studying through the book of Exodus, if you're visiting with us, and we've been studying the plagues one by one and finding that the gospel meets us even in these dark stories of judgment on unbelief as God promises to deliver His people and does deliver them and demonstrates Himself to be God alone. Occasionally, we come across a text that uh, warrants our camping for a while and, and drilling down deeper into a theological topic, and that's the case here in verse 12, where for the first time, God says He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh is said to have hardened his heart nine times in the Bible. It's also said nine times in the Bible that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And how do we relate these two things of the sovereignty of God over our hearts and yet our responsibility to choose? In this case, it is no less true than we've seen in all the other parables. God demonstrates himself to be God alone. His sovereignty is good news. It's revealed as good news. It's only bad news if you continue to ignore it, if you try to rebel against it. But it's good news if you're tired of trying to run your life. God's sovereignty is good news if you're tired of being a victim. God's sovereignty is good news if you're afraid of the future. God's sovereignty is good news if you don't know what to do with your heart and if you don't know how you're going to be saved or keep saved into all of eternity. God's sovereignty is good news. We'll begin reading again in verse 8, Exodus chapter 9. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower falls. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh Lord, would you open our eyes to see the good news of the gospel from this Old Testament passage, even a story of judgment. And would you, O oh Lord, conquer every heart here for the first time or the thousandth time. Take out hearts of stone, replace them with hearts of flesh. Cause us to rejoice in the good news of your sovereign grace. In Jesus' name we pray it and God's people said together, amen. In Augusta, Georgia, where we moved from a few years ago, there was an annual celebration hosted by two uh, prominent uh, businessmen who were uh, very community-minded. It was called Thunder Over Augusta. 
And uh, these two uh, businessmen were uh, really grown-up uh, little boys with a lot of money and liked to hear things go boom. That's what they really were about. They had a fireworks display that was like nothing else you could ever imagine. And they did it in order to honor our men and women in uniform. There are lots of them in Augusta at Fort Gordon. And so they threw a big party. It was a big festival, lots of fun and games and and, uh, and stunts uh, by all kinds of uh, various uh, people, motorcycles and whatnot. But the big, the big crowning jewel of the whole event was the fireworks extravaganza. And you can imagine it would take a lot to impress army people who are used to blowing up things all the time. And this was no, not like any other uh, fireworks display you could, you've ever seen. You know, in a, in a re- regular fireworks display, you have, the, you have the, the finale, the grand finale, a volley of fireworks at the end. Everybody knows what's happening. They blow up a bunch at all at the same time, and then everybody knows it's over. But every, every display was a volley. Uh, boom, 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 just constantly one after another. And it was so intense and so close, they handed out eye protection because you're right underneath it. And uh, they had ear protection as well. Well, we, we, we got to the end of what we thought was the finale of the finales. And then over the loudspeaker came four voices announcing what sounded like the launch, the impending launch of an ICBM missile. Countdown from 10 to 0, and then they were going to fire the thing off. And they did, and again, it was another volley. And it was not so much fireworks as these just seemed like ordinances they were blowing up. And just when you thought it couldn't get any more intense, another explosion occurred that had such concussive power, so much light, it was like a solar pulse, it terrified everyone. Everybody grabbed their heads. I said, hit the dirt to my family. Women, small children, big men running for their lives. And then it was over. Now, some people thought the whole thing had blown up or thought Al-Qaeda had taken, taken control of the whole thing. They didn't know what was happening. But finally it ended. And then over the loudspeaker came, thanks for coming, Augusta. Come back next year. Hope you enjoyed the show. And everyone started laughing and cheering and clapping. They were, they were stunned, terrified, and then relieved. That's the way we meet with God's sovereignty in Scripture. We were, we were confronted with something that we were no match for. We went from being consumers and those being entertained to those who were being awed and terrified, actually, and then to those who were clapping in gratitude. The sovereignty of God is like that. When you understand that God is God, and absolutely God, that God is sovereign over all things, over all of history, over all hearts, and over all salvation into all of eternity, you will be stunned. You will be forced to bow before a force, a power, a personal power against whom you are no match. But when you embrace that sovereignty as that which guarantees your security, you view it 
as good news. Now, God says in this story, God demonstrates in this story something that a point that he makes throughout Scripture, that he is sovereign over two things that seem most impossible. He is sovereign over the human heart, and he is sovereign over salvation in this life and in that which is to come. Now, before we can really appreciate what it means for God to be sovereign over the human heart, we have to understand the bad news good news story of the heart. The bad news about the human heart is this. It's spelled out in the Old Testament. For instance, in Psalms, the Psalms tell us that uh, the heart is calloused, the psalmist says. The heart is calloused, and out of it flows all iniquity. The writers in Proverbs call the heart many things, hardened, perverse, crooked, evil, rebellious, uh, disastrous, scheming. The prophets say about the heart, the heart is beyond comprehension. Who can understand it? And the New Testament is no more encouraging. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, the heart is darkened. The, The heart is hardened. Hebrews 3 and 4 says, when we hear the Word of God in our natural state, our hearts are hardened against it. The Bible says in our heart we scheme. We scheme against one another. We scheme against the Lord. Our hearts are perverse and helpless. Our hearts, the Bible says, are like stones. They have no life whatsoever. You can never really compliment Jesus by giving your heart to Jesus. He doesn't want your heart. He wants to give you a new heart. You have to be given a new heart. So when the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, what point is it making? It is that God is giving Pharaoh over to the choices he's made. That God has restrained his hand of softening the impact of Pharaoh's sin and released him to pursue what he wants. He gives him what he wants. This is a a stunning promise, a stunning warning of Romans chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 17 that sometimes God's judgment takes this form. You want to rebel against me. You want to take control of you. You want to pretend like you're in control of your life. You want to pursue everything that I've said is bad for you and, and dishonoring to me then you may have it. He gives them over. It's a terrifying prospect. But God is saying something else even more dramatic about, uh, about uh, Pharaoh to these Egyptians because, you know, we've noticed along the way, we've gotten these insights into Egyptian culture and worldview and, and theology. A scholar named John Kirid has helped me a great deal in understanding the background of some of these things happening in, in Egypt, as in that these, these plagues are specifically designed to demonstrate that the gods which are supposed to protect the Egyptians are not working, that the god of the Nile is no match for the god of heaven and earth, that the, that the god of the gnats and the god of darkness and the, and the gods of epidemics and the, and the gods of fertility are of no match to the Creator God. 
And so there was another myth that would be informing the way the Egyptians understood what God is doing with Pharaoh. Because the Egyptians taught that, that Pharaoh's heart was divine. And the heart of Pharaoh ruled the world. And it was in the heart of Pharaoh that he designed that he was going to take over the Israelites and make them his slaves. And in doing so, assert himself as superior to the God of the Hebrews. And he was living in that delusion that for 430 years he kept the Hebrews his slaves. And he proved that he was divine, that he was more powerful than the God they, that they chose to, to arrest in. And they also believed this about the heart of Pharaoh, that when Pharaoh died, his heart would be so pure, so faultless, that in judgment, his heart would be placed on one side of the scales and a feather would be placed on the other. And the feather would outweigh his heart. And his heart being so light, so faultless, so innocent and pure, it would lift above the feather and he would be, he would be rewarded then for his, his rightness. But if his heart was deceived and he had defaulted as a pharaoh, then his heart would be heavier than the, fair, than the feather and then his heart would be handed over to the god of Hippo to be eaten into all of eternity. One of the words, one of the three words used to describe the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a word we have translated heavy or glori glorious in other parts of the Bible, kavoth. It can mean glorious as something that is weighty for a good reason or it can mean fat or heavy. And that's the sense it is here. God made Pharaoh's heart hard, made it hard as a stone and heavy as a stone. What was he saying by doing that? God was saying, you are not in control of this history. I am in control. You're not in control of your heart. I am in control of the king's heart. And what's more, I am the judge of the king's heart. And I am starting my work of judgment on you now by making your heart weighty, heavy. I am convicting you of your guilt. I am bringing justice to bear on Pharaoh even now before you, Moses, and before the Israelites. It was terrifying. It would have been a terrifying concept to the Egyptians, but it would have been welcome to the Israelites. That the God of all the earth is the one who is sovereign even over Pharaoh and even over his heart. It's good news for us too when we yield our hearts up to him and say, take my heart of stone and transform it into a heart of flesh, one that beats after you, one that follows you. That's exactly the way Paul uses the doctrine in Romans chapter 9 through 11. He quotes this passage that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he is quoting it in Romans chapter 9 through 11 for the encouragement of the Romans. 
Let me explain that. You don't have to turn there. But uh, in Romans chapter 9 through 11, there's, a, there's sort of an interlude in the book of Romans, which was all, the, the, the book of Romans was written to these Christians, mostly Gentile Christians, who were doubting their salvation. They were, they were losing assurance that God loved them and could keep them. And so Paul was writing to them. He explained to them their sin and he explained to them the righteousness of God revealed from heaven. We'll talk more about this this evening in the evening sermon. But then he comes to chapters 9 through 11 and he anticipates the question they're asking. They're saying, you know, Paul, you've told us that God will, will never, that we'll never be able to be, we, we can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But what about our Jewish friends? There are Jewish people we know who have rejected Christ as the Messiah. And, and, and doesn't that mean that God has rejected them? And doesn't that mean that God has been untrue, unfaithful to his promise? And, and the fact that the, the, the gospel is going with, with so much power and fruitfulness to the Gentiles, doesn't that mean that he's, he's gotten tired of the Jewish people and he's, he's forsaken them and now he's going to the Gentiles? Well, what's to guarantee that he's not going to get tired of us? What's going to guarantee that he won't turn his back on us and go after another group of people? And Paul says, uh, here, here, I've got to... I've got to sort the laundry for you. I've got to clarify some misapprehensions you've had. Number one, you've got to understand that God never promised to save people just because of their ethnicity. God never promised to save people. His sovereignty is not demonstrated by someone just hitting the genetic lottery. God, God's sovereignty is demonstrated by saving by grace. Saving people who didn't want anything to do with him. Don't you remember, he says, in effect, don't you remember that, that we are all like sheep who have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're hopeless without God and, and in this world. We would never have pursued him had he not pursued us in sovereign grace and conquered our hearts and turned them. I am the potter, the human heart is the clay, and in my sovereignty, I can take that clay pot, that clay heart that is hardened like a rock, and I can reshape it and remake it and cause it to pursue me and to love me. That's where sovereignty is displayed. And if I can do that sovereignly, if I can conquer your will and renew it and make it long for me, then how, how, will, I, how will I ever abandon you? What is there left to a fear? That's the, way, that's the way Paul uses the doctrine of the sovereignty of God over the human heart. That's good news, isn't it? It's only bad news if you, if you, if you continue to reject it. It's good news if you're honest about your heart. If you're honest and admit that your heart is everything bad that the Bible says it is, it's as hopeless and helpless as the Bible says it is, then it is good news that Christ can conquer it. And not just conquer your heart when you are refusing to believe Him, but Christ is sovereign over your heart even after you're a believer and find it difficult, continually difficult to steer your heart. 
Well, some of you are defeated by the guilt of the past, and you say, if only I could make my heart believe the gospel, that I am forgiven. You can't do that. And some of you are, are say, if, if I, I know that God loves me, and I've given, I've given my life, to have committed my life to Him, but there is this person I can't, absolutely cannot forgive. My heart will not allow me to forgive that person. If only I could make my heart forgive. You can't do that. If only I could turn my heart away from that, that substance or that action or that worldview or that, that defeating, intrusive thought that it is addicted to. If only I could turn my heart from it. You can't do it. If only I could, if only I could turn my anxious heart away from its fears and depression and turn it to hope. And courage, you can't do that either. But Christ can. Because He's sovereign over your heart. Not just initially when you come to faith, but He remains sovereign over your heart. And we will not finish renewing your heart until He makes it perfectly con con uh, uh, conformed to His. So what do you do? What do you do about that? What do you do with that wayward heart, that unbelieving heart? You call on the name of the Lord. That takes us to the next point. That God is not only sovereign over your heart, He's sovereign over your salvation, which the Bible says salvation is not just your initially coming to Christ. Salvation is what God has to work for you all through your life in order to get you into eternity. God doesn't just wind you up and let you go. He constantly exercises His sovereignty over your heart to draw you, draw you to Himself. Now, for some of you, that's an offensive doctrine. Some of you don't like the idea that, that, uh, that God is sovereign over your salvation. I know I didn't initially because I was taught that I, I am responsible and I, I was taught that my choices my choices are what matters. And I was taught, to, taught that I had to pick myself up by my bootstraps and make myself go forward. And, and uh, I, I was taught that, that, uh, that Jesus was complimented when I was wise enough to choose Him. And you know, that all felt uh, fairly convincing and, and uh, felt fairly true until I discovered more of myself and I discovered just how little power I have over anything. And then with desperation, I had to embrace afresh the sovereignty of God over our salvation. It's a real miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle to be set free from your heart of stone, given a heart of flesh. It's a miracle to be set free from your sinful past and, and, and a bondage to choosing only that which is displeasing to God. It's a miracle. Recently, I made a new friend. I was doing business with someone, and I was trying to see where he was spiritually. I didn't know anything about him. We were striking up a friendship, and <clears throat> I asked him what he did for a living. He, does, he described to me his vocation, and he talked about how, how he cared for his employees. He was really he really loved his employees. He was a burden for them. He was watching, looking out for their safety. And he, he said, I, I sometimes lie awake at night worried about my employees that one of them is going to get hurt. 
And I try to encourage them. I try to inspire them. I said, you know, their employees are really blessed to have a, a boss like you. That's unusual. And in fact, you're, you're, you, the way you take care of your employees makes me think of the grace of God. It took him back a little bit. And he said, uh, you know, that would never have been possible for me before I changed. I didn't care about anybody before I changed. I wouldn't have cared about my employees before I changed. Well, tell me about that change, I said. He said, well, the Lord did it. Now, I learned later that this, uh, this man had grown up uh, going to Christian ministries as, a, as a, a teenager, and he'd grown up going to church every week, and, and he said he'd walked the aisle multiple times, but, but as he grew into an adult, his, he said his heart was more and more hardened. Those were just outward displays. Maybe he was a Christian, but he was certainly not living one like one. And, and he was more and more self-consumed, more and more self-absorbed, all about his career, all about what he wanted to do, all about what he was interested in. And he was, it was wrecking his marriage. It was wrecking his friendships. And so he took the, the advice of the world, which was you've got to get rid of those things that are, are hampering you, hindering your freedom. And so he started getting rid of those things, those friends that, that uh, he thought were a, were a handicap to him. And then he, he even wrote up divorce papers for his wife. He said shortly before he brought the divorce papers to his wife, he, he was listening to his radio station, which was a rock station. And, and there, uh, inexplicably, a, a preacher broke into the rock station, made him mad. Not only did a preacher break into his rock station, it was a preacher he didn't like. And he didn't like what the preacher was preaching either because the preacher said, God has to take over your heart. As long as you're in control of your heart, your heart is dead. God has to take control of your heart. That's all he said. That's all he heard anyway. And he said, God take over my heart. Lord Jesus, take over my heart. That's all he prayed. That was his change. That doesn't sound so profound, does it? But to him, it's, it's, it should be. It should sound to us entirely profound if we are honest about our own hearts. He went on to say, there is nothing, I'm not, I, don't, I don't worry so much about the future. I, I, I'm I'm not a, I'm not, I don't doubt that God loves me. Why? Because I've experienced the miracle of God changing my heart. There's no greater miracle than that. It's what God does sovereignly. And He does it for those for whom Christ died. God saves everyone for whom Christ died. And when Christ died, He died for those God chose before the foundation of the world, the Bible says, and He died infallibly for them. Now, some people invented a doctrine in the 1800s, <clears throat> that said that, that Christ did not die specifically for those who would be saved, but that He died generically for the whole world. That He, that he put a, 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 enough money in the bank that whoever chooses to write a check on it will be saved. 
Now that sounds, maybe that sounds more politically correct. Maybe it sounds more American, putting the choice in the hands of the people. But do you realize how depressing that is? How, how, in, how insecure that should make you feel to think that Jesus went to the cross and he said, boy, I hope this works. Man, I hope somebody, I hope somebody will have the wisdom to turn to me and ask me for salvation. Oh, there's the thief on the cross. I'm so grateful for you. That's not the way the Bible describes the work of Christ. It says, those for whom Christ died, well, he rescued them from the kingdom of darkness. He delivered them from the, the oppression of the evil one. He canceled the written code that was against them. He disarmed the powers and the principalities. He washed them from their sins. He redeemed them. He forgave them. He doesn't say, I hope that happens. He says, that happened. When he died on the cross, that's what he accomplished. And in history, then, he applies it by the Holy Spirit to those who call upon him. He does it infallibly. One famous preacher said, you know, some people talk about this doctrine of the particular redemption of Christ on the cross. They call it a, a dour, hard, depressive creed of Calvinism, but it's not that at all. He said, how, how, why would anyone choose this? Why would somebody say, I am so glad that Christ died for the masses and I am among those masses? Rather than, he loved me. He loved me to the point that he fought his way to that cross. And when he suffered and bled and hung there and died for me, I was on his heart. I was on his mind. And he secured my salvation such that he could say, it is finished. The work is done. That's the kind of redemption. Christ works his people. Now you say, well, how do I know? How do I know whether I'm one of the, the chosen ones, as the Bible calls them, or the elect, as the Bible calls them? How do I know? That's not your concern. You don't need to worry about that at all. The Bible only says this to you. Call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. And if you call on the name of the Lord... You will be saved, and you will prove that you are that one for whom Christ died. If you're not, you won't call on the name of the Lord. But if you call on Him, you will be saved. All those for whom Christ died, the Bible says, die to sin. Call on the name of the Lord. He'll take out your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. I have a friend who is, when he was a little boy, grew up in a, a home that was toxic. His mother married again. His stepfather was a man of very significant means. He was a famous person. You would all know him if I mentioned his name. He was a famous person. But he was cruel. And uh, his mother became a socialite uh, with this man, and they were never at home. And, and they, they kept up appearances. And 
they were brutal and harsh at home, but out in public, they went to church. They went to a very legalistic church. And so this combination, he said, this combination of being terrified at home, being, being left alone, abandoned, and then uh, presented with a God you could never please, he said, it, it combined to make an obsessive, insecure, narcissistic young man. When he was a little boy, he would try to escape the notice of his stepfather and his, and his mother by hiding under the stairs or sometimes playing out in the, in the creek that ran through the woods nearby. And he and his sister liked to find interesting rocks, and they found a, a collection of geodes on one occasion. They cracked them open, and they had little crystals inside of them. And one of them, he cracked open, and it had an interesting configuration. It looked like mullions in a window or... Uh, 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 crosshairs of a, of a telescope, a very near uh, a thin uh, vein of minerals crossed in this hollow sphere. He thought that was so interesting, he put it in his pocket, and he kept it the rest of his life. By the time he was 30, he was uh, living life the way he wanted to, the way he thought it should be. He was he was doing whatever he wanted to do, and he thought what would make him happy was to live with his girlfriend and, and bike across Europe. As he was biking across Europe, he said his, his girlfriend, he was in the middle of France, his girlfriend got tired of his neediness, and she ditched him, and she left. She must have known French. He didn't know French. He didn't know the language. He didn't know where he was going. She had the directions. He was sitting forlorn on the side, on a curb in in the Darden Valley of France, weeping. He said, suddenly, the only thing that I cherished, the thing that I had idolized, my girlfriend was ripped out of my heart. I could hear the sucking sound of it being pulled out, and it's filled now with a terrifying vacuum. I was absolutely hopeless. And then someone tapped him on the shoulder. It was a priest. The priest spoke broken English, but he got enough of the message to say that he, the man wanted him to come and have dinner in his home. There was someone who spoke English, and, and he poured out his heart to this, to this person, and, and together they basically conveyed that there is a God, and God has loving purposes for him. He got back to America. Someone shared the gospel with him. The clear gospel, and he gave his heart to Christ. He allowed the, the, the Holy Spirit to replace that hard heart with a heart that is alive. He said shortly after that, he found that, that geode again. And he studied the mineral deposit in the middle of it, and he said it wasn't, it wasn't really like a, a, a crosshair in a telescope or a mullion in a window the, the cross beam of it was, was higher. It was more, he said, like the shape of a cross. And he realized that God had been pursuing him all those years. As those accretions of hurt and selfishness and pain, the, his own sin and the sin of those against him, as those accretions were building up and hardening his heart, God was pursuing him. And it took a sovereign God to conquer that heart, to crack it open, to clean out the idols inside of it, and replace it with the love of Jesus Christ.
he says in his book about his own life. My heart has been broken many times since. I've failed. I've succeeded. I've believed. I've doubted. But God has never ceased to be faithful. To control my heart. And steer me back to the Savior. That's what he promises to do for you too. All you must do is call in the name of the Lord. You will be saved now and into eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, there are those within the sound of my voice or in this sanctuary today who have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. They've tried to build a citadel around their heart. Would this be the day that you conquer them, set them free? There are others of us, Lord, who say we believe. Help our unbelief. Continue to conquer our hearts. Continue to save us. To fulfill those absolute promises that you make regarding the work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Get a name for yourself as you do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.